Welcome to the Sunday School class from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can have this time together today. We are continuing with our study of the Ten Commandments, and our lessons are coming from the Nazarene Quarterly. Today, we are actually combining lessons from September 20th and 27th. The title of today's lesson, I Am the Lord Your God, and we'll be looking at the first and second of the Ten Commandments. Before we get into the lesson, however, let's begin with a prayer. And I want to pray the prayer that Paul offered for the Philippians in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You know, we live in a world of contracts and agreements. And most of the time, we sign our lives away. We don't even think about what we're signing. If you go to the doctor, they hand you 15 pages and you have to sign and initial every one of them. If you placed an order on the GameStation website in 2010, you would have found yourself agreeing to the following clause. GameStation wrote, You grant us a non-transferable option to claim, for now and forevermore, your immortal soul. Should we wish to exercise this option, you agree to surrender your immortal soul and any claim you may have on it within five working days of receiving written notification. Now, they happened to do this on April 1st, 2010, as an April Fool's prank, but over 7,000 people ended up signing agreement to this without really even looking at it or realizing what they were doing. Today, we're looking at God making a covenant, a contract with His people. But He doesn't want them to enter into it blindly. He wants them to know what they're getting into. It was important that they realize this. And so we're beginning today to look at Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, last week, we looked at how God introduced himself to the Israelites. This was at Mount Sinai. God was preparing them to receive his law, and he wanted them to know who he was. And so he gave them several commands before he met with them. They were commanded to wash their clothes, abstain from sexual relations, and to build a barrier around the mountain to keep from trespassing while God was present. And God did all of these things so that the Israelites would understand what it meant 
that he was a holy God. And God's holiness showed itself, it manifested itself in two key aspects or areas. First, it showed itself in his total moral purity. And then in the fact that God is completely other. He is separate, totally unique, unlike anyone, anything else. And it's going to be essential for the Israelites to understand that uh, understand what God's holiness is. They are going to be entering a covenant with God, and this covenant requires them to live in His holy presence. And they, as a result, will be holy as well. The covenant is going to be put into place through the Mosaic Law, teaching them how to be God's holy people. Now, Scripture tells us the story of how God dealt with humans throughout our history as humans. It shows us the unfolding of God's plan to redeem and restore sinful man. And this relationship between God and man, it took the form of three different covenants, three agreements that God entered into with man, where God lays out what He's going to do and what He expects from us in return. The first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. This was the covenant God signed with Abraham, one man who would be obedient to God. The second covenant was the Mosaic covenant, where God chose an entire nation, a group of people, the people of Israel, and He made them His chosen people. This was, the contract was through the law of Moses, the law revealed on Mount Sinai that we are studying now. The third and final covenant would be the covenant that's established through the body and the blood of Christ. And this covenant would be made with all people, Jew and Gentile alike, and it would provide salvation for us. Each of these covenants was a standalone agreement, but they were also interconnected. Each covenant would build upon the last. Each covenant didn't nullify the one that went before, but they transformed it. They added to it. It's important for us to understand this. The Mosaic Law, this second covenant, was not a mistake. It wasn't an attempt by God to bring salvation that somehow failed. The Mosaic Law did exactly what God intended it to do. And the Mosaic Law still has relevance for us today. And that's a big part of what we want to understand as we go through this unit. The Mosaic Law has not been done away with. I want to direct you to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we can see from Jesus onwards that there is still the expectation that we will be keeping parts of this Mosaic law, this covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant has been transformed, 
we don't keep it in exactly the same way that the Jewish people did. We don't follow the dietary laws. We don't have the sacrificial system that they had. But it still continues to play a role in God's plan of salvation and to show us what God expects from us today. So today we're going to begin looking at the Mosaic Law by looking at what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. Now, these are a series of statements that precede the specific laws of the covenant. Sometimes they're referred to by the Greek term, the Decalogue, and most of us are familiar with them. We, we learned them years ago in Sunday school class. These are found in Exodus chapter 20. Now, these first ten statements, the Decalogue, what we're going to call the Ten Commandments, they are distinct from the rest of the Mosaic Law. First of all, this part of the covenant, these ten statements, were spoken to Moses in the presence of the Israelites. They were there to hear these words spoken from the mouth of God Himself. They had gathered at the foot of the mountain. God had called Moses up to the top of the mountain, but they clearly heard God say these words. In uh, Exodus 20 uh, or Exodus 19, verses 18 to 21, we're told, When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So we can see that these Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, they were spoken to Moses in the presence of the Israelites. The rest of the law was given to Moses later when he's by himself. So the Israelites actually hear God's voice speak these Ten Commandments. The rest of the law is relayed to the Israelites through Moses, but they actually get the first of these from God Himself. Now, this title that we use, the Ten Commandments, it's actually used three times in, in Scripture. It's used in Exodus chapter 34, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 10. But when we translate this as Ten Commandments, it's a little bit misleading. The Hebrew word that's used here is debar, which doesn't literally mean commandment. Instead, the literal meaning is word. So really, this section is not titled the Ten Commandments, but Ten Words. And you see this from the Greek, Decalogue, with deca meaning ten and log meaning words. So the Greek is literally ten words. The significance of this are that the, the Ten Commandments are not truly individual commandments in the sense of a, of a commandment. They are more like principles or declarations. These ten words are followed by 603 specific laws, laws that deal with every aspect of daily life, from the food the Israelites to eat, to the clothing they're to wear, and how they're to build their houses, all of this. Now, 
what we see is similar to the documents that, that we become familiar with later. For example, the Constitution of the United States. You know, the Constitution sets up the government of the United States, but it begins with a preamble. And you remember this from your days in civics class in high school or maybe U.S. history class. The preamble to the Constitution begins, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, do ordain and establish this Constitution and then it goes on. And so the rest of the, the Constitution are the articles themselves, the rules that spell out exactly how the government is going to operate. But it begins with this preamble. And you can think of the Ten Commandments as kind of a preamble to the law itself. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are these founding principles for all of the specific commands that will follow. The, the law itself is an extension of these ten principles. And this is important for us to understand because we are not under the Mosaic Law, those 603 specific commands. But we are still under those principles that are espoused by the ten words, the ten commandments. Jesus later confirmed this by condensing the ten commandments into two overall principles— Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we can see the Ten Commandments are important for us in the New Covenant, for us as Christians. They're important that we understand that we follow them today. They have not been done away with. Jesus didn't get rid of these commandments. He put them into place and even extended them. You know, Jesus uh, told the disciples, You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you. And he goes on to extend it to exclude even hatred itself. So we don't want to dismiss the Ten Commandments as if they're no longer relevant to us because we're under the New Covenant. The specifics of the Mosaic Law no longer apply to us, but the, the law lives on in uh, the principles of the Ten Commandments and those Ten Commandments live on in the New Covenant, too. Now, when we, when we look at Exodus chapter 20, we actually find 13 specific statements. And so when we make these into Ten Commandments, uh, it's, it's a little bit, uh, there's variety in how we divide them up to get ten. And there's always been some difference of opinion as to exactly which of these 13 statements make up which of the Ten Commandments. But uh, they always begin with the same two. Now, in the Jewish tradition, uh, the, the very first part, I am the Lord your God, becomes the first commandment, and then the commands about having no other God and not making any graven images become the second one. So we're not going to worry about splitting up the first and second commandments today, but we're going to take them together uh, as, as a whole. Now, when uh, students in high school, when they're taught writing in English class, when they're told to investigate a topic, they're usually given the structure of what we call the journalistic questions. Tell us who and what and when and where and why and how. 
And so these two beginning commandments are foundational for us because they tell us the what and the how and the who of what it means to be holy and what it means to worship a holy God. So they begin with who we are to worship and why we are to worship. These commands begin with, God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. And so God begins the Ten Commandments by identifying himself. And it's interesting, he gives two specific names. In the original Hebrew, it's, I am Jehovah your Elohim. He's using his personal name, Jehovah, and his title, Elohim. Now, remember, the Israelites are hearing these words spoken from the very very mouth of God himself, coming out of the cloud where God is present. Now, they've been living among the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had over 2,000 gods, So it was important that they understand this was not one of the gods of the Egyptians. This was the same God that had appeared to Abraham and signed that covenant, made that covenant with Abraham hundreds of years ago. Now, Elohim is his title. It's God, and it's the name for God appearing in the very first words of the Bible when it tells us, in the beginning, God. And so it, it, the meaning is the supreme one. It shows us the power, the authority of God as, as the one and only. The personal name of God is, is Jehovah. And you remember, this is how God introduced himself to Moses when Moses said, but who will I tell the people of Israel? Who will I tell them that you are? And God said, tell them that I am Jehovah. I am the I am. And this this name of God is held by Jewish people today to be so sacred, they won't even pronounce it. It's spoken only once per year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so from God's name, we see His holiness. This is a unique God, a different God, one that is totally distinct from any of the other gods that they've heard about. So they are told who they are to worship. And then they are also commanded why. God tells them, you are to worship the Lord your God because I am the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the Israelites were to worship because this was the God who had redeemed them. He had brought them out of this terrible bondage they had been in Egypt. They were no longer slaves because of this God. Therefore, He owned them. Now, it's important that we realize here, this covenant that God was establishing was with a people who were already redeemed. God had already freed them and brought them out of slavery before he established his covenant with them. So it wasn't that by following the covenant they would be redeemed. They were redeemed, and as a result, they would follow the covenant. One of the main things we get wrong about the law is the idea that the law was meant to redeem the Israelites. If they obeyed, they would be saved. But redemption came first. Redemption had occurred before the law was given. God had already brought them out and made them his people. 
It's important we understand God's commands, God's laws do not redeem us. They are for us to follow once we have been redeemed. I like this quote from Tom Bradford where he writes, To follow the Lord's principles and commands without first being redeemed is the truest definition of legalism. But for a saved person to follow the Lord's command is the normal and expected response. So, in the New Testament, we find the law condemned as a way of earning redemption, which it should be. This was never God's plan for the law to redeem man. God's plan was always that redemption would come through Jesus Christ. So the law was never intended to redeem. The law was put in place so that they would know how to live once they were God's people. So we can see God's people have an obligation to God himself. God is the one who has redeemed them. They owe God their very lives. They had become God's possession. Now, we make a big mistake today when we insist that because salvation is by grace, that there are no obligations on how we are to live as Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace, grace that we claim but that we don't recognize as having any kind of impact on our lives, that we don't recognize any kind of obligations or restrictions on our part because we claim we are not under law, we're under grace. But we are God's possessions. We belong exclusively exclusively to Him, and that puts very specific obligations on us. We are to walk by the Spirit, as the New Testament says. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, as we look at these commands, that who we are to worship and why we are to worship, then we get into how we are to worship. Idolatry was a problem that plagued the Israelites from their very beginning throughout their entire history. Thomas Bradford writes again, he writes about this problem of idolatry. It says, It might be the principle that's most consistently violated by God's people throughout the Bible. And this is because the insidious nature of idolatry shows up in ways that neither the people of the Bible era nor we modern folks expect. And so God is starting out by commanding them you must avoid idolatry. And he does that by giving them three separate commands. He says, you're to have no other gods before me. You're not to make an image in the form of anything in heaven, on earth, or in the water. And you are not to worship any of these images. Now, the problem with the Israelites and their problem with idolatry was not that they rejected Jehovah. The worship in the temple continued. The sacrifices continued. The problem was they added other gods. They brought in other gods to worship. And so you have to ask yourself, why? What was this attraction to having several gods, numerous gods? Why did they seem unable to resist? And there were different reasons for this. First, you know, there was the influence of the cultures around them. 
They were surrounded by a pagan culture that had their own gods. And when you're surrounded by this kind of culture and you see these cultures prospering and succeeding, uh, you see them achieve military and political power, there is a strong pull for you to imitate them. You know, the idea that the Israelites could get the same kind of power, the same prosperity, the same success. And they didn't want to be seen as peculiar. They didn't want to be seen as, as less sophisticated, so to speak. Now, there was also an attraction to pagan worship because it was fun. It was exciting. It was a spectacle. You know, pagan worship provided excitement to your life. It was something to enliven your life. Uh, a big part of all pagan worship was feasting, uh, the eating, the meals they would have, and it was also sex. So food and sex, and those were big attractions then, and of course we know those are big attractions today. But I like this quote by Philip Yancey where he says, Idolatry ranks as far and away the most common topic in the entire Bible. And so throughout the Bible, we understand just how extensive our pull to idolatry is and how dangerous it is to us uh, if, if we're going to avoid this kind of lifestyle. So we want to begin today looking at these first two commandments, these prohibitions against idolatry. And we can see four basic principles for us. First, God lays down the principle, you are to have no other gods besides me. Now, the emphasis here is not on belief. It's not that they were to believe there was only one God. They were to worship only one God. You know, at that time, the Hebrews did not seek converts from the foreign nations. You know, their concern wasn't what the other nations were doing. Their concern with how were they to live, and they were to obey God. You know, in our day today, we can put such an emphasis on belief, on, uh, you know, believing in one God. But that isn't really the point here. The point is who we worship. You know, James in verse uh, chapter 2, 19 of James, he says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So it's not enough just to believe in one God. The question is, who will we worship? Will we worship only one God? And so this command forbids the worshiping of other gods instead of the Lord, and it also forbids worshiping other gods as well as the Lord, along with the Lord. So God is demanding exclusivity in our worship, that we worship Him and Him alone. And Jesus uh, gave us an amplification of this. When he tells us the very first commandment, the one that assumes priority over all others, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This commandment is really to take God as our ultimate. Nothing is allowed to take the place of God in our lives. We looked to no one but God to fulfill the role that God plays. You know, God is seen as our most precious possession, as what we value most. It's interesting that in the New Testament, 
Paul defines idolatry as covetousness, the idea that idolatry is a disordered love. It's when we take the love that we should have for God and we give it to something that's not God, something that's less than God. Now, think of what's happening when you are uh, giving your love to other gods. You're looking to other things to fulfill the role of God in your life. What you're saying is, I find God boring or lacking. I need to put something else in place if I'm going to be satisfied. This is offensive to God, and it destroys us as well. You know, to worship something is to find it worthy. And when we worship other gods, we are finding them worthy instead of God. It's, it's a falsely placed confidence in other things. And so, to have other gods denigrates God's holiness. We talked about that the, the key aspect of what holiness means is that God is unique. He is totally other, one of a kind. When we take God and we make him only one of several, even if we make him the first of several, we still are denigrating his holiness, and it's unacceptable. God will not accept sharing his glory with other gods. Now, from this, we see the principle that, you know, we want to worship other gods because it allows us to be in control. You know, for nations that had a number of gods to pick from, look at the Egyptians with their 2,000 gods. They could pick and choose which god they would worship. So the big attraction for polytheism was that it allowed you as the worshiper to be in charge. You could choose who you wanted to worship, when you wanted to worship, how you wanted to worship. You could choose the God that you felt best served your interest. And so you could manipulate the system. You could tweak it. And we see this ultimate consumer mentality, you know, uh, what is in it for me? How does serving this God benefit me? And God wants to make it plain. This is not how we are to worship God. We don't come to God with the idea of how can we manipulate God? How can we uh, use God for our purposes? God must rank first. God must be in control. Now, the second command that we see, the second principle that we see here is we are not to make for ourselves an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. They weren't to bow down and worship any of these images. Now, we usually uh, take this to mean that it's forbidden to make idols representing other gods. But actually, the other gods were already forbidden by the first commandment. A big part of this second commandment is we are not to make uh, idols to represent God himself. You know, we weren't to make any kind of image that would represent God. Uh, we weren't to make or to use an idol in the worship of God. And the Israelites were forbidden to make an image because it reduced the glory of God himself. When you chose to represent God as one particular image, what you were doing was picking out one aspect 
and obscuring the truth of who God is. You were hiding all of the rest of God's aspects, God's attributes. Uh, J.I. Packer writes that any image of God adulterates his glory because images can only convey a small facet of who God is. So they automatically conceal most of who God is. They present a false picture from God, a false idea of God. Uh, Now, when we look at this idea of making idols, of making images, many times it carried with it the idea of controlling God. Uh, Timothy Macero writes that uh, controlling divine powers so that you could have better crops or a larger family was a primary objective in religion. And so in in, uh, these times, what we saw was religion was combined with magic, with superstition. It was an attempt to control the gods through incantations, through secret names, through idols, uh, these physical objects. And so to reduce uh, God to an image was an attempt to reduce God to something that you could place in your control. It allowed you to possess, uh, to manipulate God. You know, in uh, Genesis, we are told the story of how when Jacob left Laban's household to return to the Canaan, to the land of Canaan, that Rachel, before she left, she steals Laban's household gods and takes them with her. And one of the reasons that Laban pursues Jacob is to get these gods back. And when he finds Jacob, he confronts him and says, you know, I know you want to go home to be with your family, but why did you steal my gods? And Jacob denies it because he has no idea that Rachel has stolen those gods. But we can see from this the the idea that if you have the idols themselves, somehow you possess the gods and you, you place these gods under your control. And we see this again with the people of Israel and how they use the Ark of the Covenant as an idol. They were fighting the Philistines and they lost. And so they decide, look, we'll go back and we'll get the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contains God's presence. And so when we bring the ark with us and bring it out onto the battlefield, we have contained God. The idea is kind of we have lightning in a bottle. And when we have God with us, there's no way the Philistines are going to be able to defeat us. And so the idea was by controlling the ark, by taking the ark where they wanted it, they controlled God himself. God would be forced to come along with the ark. And so we get the mentality of of what it meant to have an idol, a physical representation of God. It's the idea that we can control, that we can manipulate God. And so, uh, you know, we see something that's very relevant to us today because this desire to control and to manipulate God for our own use, this is still very much prevalent among us. Uh, And so God tells us, that I will not allow you to make a physical representation of me so that you don't get the idea that you can control me, that you can possess me. Then we see the principle as well that God is a jealous God. 
It says, you know, I am a jealous God, and if you violate these commands, your children will be punished. I punish the children of those who hate me to the third and fourth generation, but show uh, thousands of generations of those who love me. I show them uh, my goodness. And so God shows us or God tells us here that he is a jealous God. And that is confusing to us. We, we don't really like to think of God as jealous because jealousy has such a negative connotation for us. And our jealousy, most of the time, is usually a negative thing. Our jealousy is, is usually a horrible thing. But that's not the same situation with God. God's jealousy is righteous. It's right and good. God is right to be jealous because he demands our deepest and strongest affections because he is deserving of our deepest and strongest affections. And so God has the right to be jealous, to demand that we give these things only to him and to no other. But God also is jealous. God refuses to share his glory with another because of his love. We find our greatest joy when God is our greatest treasure. And God is telling us, I will allow nothing else to share my glory. I will not allow you to settle for anything less than me. Now, John Calvin wrote that the heart of man was an idle factory. And what he meant was man's heart, when left to its natural inclinations, is to continue to produce idol after idol after idol. Now, next week, I want to get into more of how these commandments apply to our lives today because they are very much with us still. The temptation to have other gods, the temptation to have idols. God is still telling us today, I am a jealous God. I will permit no other God to be worshipped. I will not permit you to make any kind of carved graven images. Now, how we do this has changed. Most of us do not have a physical idol in our home. Most of us don't worship a pagan god. But uh, we are worshiping other gods, and we do have idols in our lives. And so next week, I want to begin looking at, at how we see these things played out in our lives today. But let's close today's lesson with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for these Ten Commandments that we are studying. We thank you for these principles that you have laid out because we know that these principles were given to us for our good and that you put them into place to show us how we can live with a holy God and how we can be holy in God's presence. We ask that you would help us as we go through these lessons to not just to, to learn them with our heads, but to really accept them into our hearts and make them a deep, deep part of our lives. We give you the praise in your name. Amen.